This is Guns and Butter. trouble on these issues. These, these Guantanamo issues will deeply, and are beginning already deeply, to infect uh, our, our freedoms in the United States and our criminal justice system. Shouldn't on prisoners and habeas corpus, shouldn't the courts have a right to say this person should be freed, and shouldn't really, uh, which is where we're going now on this, shouldn't, when it comes to the targeted killing of an American citizen, shouldn't the courts have a role in deciding whether that's appropriate or not? What the court was saying here is the court doesn't have a role in that. So what we have now, after a district court decision, is that the president uh, can commit murder. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Ratner. Today's show, Obama's National Security State. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights and is adjunct professor of law at Columbia University Law School. He has also been a lecturer of international human rights litigation at the Yale Law School and the Columbia School of Law, president of the National Lawyers Guild, legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, and radio co-host for the civil rights show Law and Disorder. Michael Ratner serves on the board of the Culture Project in New York City and is vice president of the board of Voices of a People's History of the United States. Michael Ratner, welcome. Nice to be with you, Bonnie. Michael, last time we spoke, George Bush was president and the makeup of the Supreme Court was different. You won a landmark case, Boumedian versus Bush. In an historic decision, the court unambiguously held that the center's clients detained at Guantanamo have a constitutional right to file petitions for habeas corpus in U.S. federal court challenging the lawfulness of their detention. What is the current status of the right of habeas corpus, the right to challenge detention in the United States? What have been the court decisions, and how has it played out, particularly under Obama? The bottom line, Bonnie, is that we're still in deep trouble. There's still just under 200 people at Guantanamo, despite efforts of hundreds of lawyers and hundreds of activists, thousands of activists, to try and finally close that prison down and get people returned either to their home countries or to other countries. It took many years to get to that decision you just discussed, the Bumetian decision. We took three cases to the Supreme Court until they finally upheld the constitutional right to habeas. Uh, but then along comes not just the end of the Bush term, but the Obama administration. And of course, the Obama administration had opened its term uh, when, he, when Obama took office in January, saying he would close Guantanamo in a year. And now we're two years after that, and we're still sitting there with an open Guantanamo, and no real chance that Guantanamo will be closed before this administration goes into the next election, which is to say another two years from now. So it's really come to a standstill. And if we look at what the administration has done, it's a continuation, certainly with regard to the Guantanamo issues, of the Bush policies. And so we begin by looking at habeas corpus, which is, of course, the right of a person to go into court and say to the government, why are you holding me? What is the legal basis for your holding me? And it's true, we do have that right. And as of today, some 70 or 80 or so, prisoners have actually been exonerated by the federal court. Uh, The court has said, uh, you have no right 
to continue to hold these prisoners, or they've been exonerated even by the administration. Uh, but focusing on the ones the court has exonerated, so the court says, there's nothing against you, you should be freed. And then what did the Bush administration do first, and now the Obama administration has continued uh, to say, is even though the federal court has said you should be freed, the court has no right to free you. So essentially you've gone through this entire almost 10 years now, or nine years, of litigation, trying to get out, uh, but we're not going to allow the federal court to free you. They can't send you to the United States. It's not up to them to let you off of Guantanamo. So essentially, the right of habeas corpus becomes almost meaningless, because as you and I speak, the exact figures are, are uh, well, maybe not precise or close. There's 89 people of the 180 or so, 190 or so, who've been exonerated either by the court or the administration. In other words, they haven't done anything, and they're completely uh, free of any charges, except they're still in Guantanamo. So in terms of habeas corpus, we have the right, um, but it can't get you out of prison, which to me strips the right of its essential characteristics. Well, what does that say about the separation of powers? It sounds to me like you're saying that the judiciary, uh, in practice, doesn't have any real power. You know, that's a very strong point. I mean, we were all taught, you know, many of us probably fell asleep during the lectures, uh, in high school and junior high, elementary, about separation of powers. We have an independent judiciary, we have an executive, and we have a Congress. And judiciary is supposed to be able to check the president uh, or the Congress when they make decisions that are unconstitutional. And the judiciary is also considered, at least theoretically, to be a bulk work of our fundamental freedoms, particularly the, uh, the freedom to not be put in jail or executive detention just because the president says you should be there. And so what it says about separation of powers is the president has really overridden President Obama, uh, and President Bush earlier has overridden the independence of the judiciary. Because I ask myself, how can it be that you can take a person in front of a court, challenge his detention, the detention is found to be illegal, and then the president can say, well, I don't care whether it's illegal or not, I'm leaving that person in Guantanamo until I decide uh, to, until I decide, uh, to let that person go. Now, what's interesting here is, of course, I think in part because of this administration's weakness, um, particularly when it came into office, uh, that the Congress has unfortunately gotten into the act. And while there's some technicalities about this, uh, when I say that, when Obama took office, there were a number of people at Guantanamo who could have been brought directly into the United States. They had been found not guilty of anything. Uh, everybody admitted that they hadn't done anything. They had a community in the United States. These are Uyghur people from western China uh, who had been oppressed in China. They were picked up really almost, I would say, at the behest of the Chinese. Uh, but eventually they were found not to have done anything. And Obama, rather than bring those people into the United States, dilly-dallied for a long time. And then Congress started to pass various laws, Democrats included, that said that no Guantanamo person could be brought into the United States. And that situation is just getting worse and worse and worse. So now you have this incredible situation of the United States trying to persuade countries in Europe or elsewhere in the world. I mean, there's people in Palau in the South Pacific they've made deals with, etc. Countries in the rest of the world to take innocent Guantanamo people while the United States is unwilling to take even one person. Uh, and that I attribute really to 
the lack of force by the Obama administration, uh, as well as its weakness, particularly in the beginning, uh, but even today. Uh, really, I think what they've gone with here is the inside the beltway security, national security establishment, the military, and really the understanding that in, the, in their view, their understanding or their belief that the country doesn't really care about the people at Guantanamo. Well, Michael, I was just about to ask you what had been the attitude of Congress to the detainees, and I guess you've sort of explained that. I know that you write about Congress and the executive branch as the two political branches. And so uh, I'm reminded that when we last spoke, you had uh, talked about how Congress had tried several times to override court decisions with regard to these detainees. Yes, uh, Congress, the first two decisions we won with regard to Guantanamo uh, were not based on the constitutional right to habeas corpus. They were based on the fact that many, many years ago, a hundred or more, Congress had passed a statute giving habeas corpus rights uh, to U.S. citizens and others who were in U.S. custody. And the court had interpreted that statute as to say it applies to people held at Guantanamo. Well, that went back to Congress, and not once, but twice, uh, Congress overrode that statute. They amended the statute. They said it doesn't apply to people at Guantanamo, etc. Finally, the case that we took Congress uh, to court on uh, was the case, Bumedian, that you opened the show with, which is the one that said there's not just a statutory right once passed by Congress, but there's a constitutional right. So we knew from the beginning uh, that not just uh, in a Republican-controlled Congress, which we had for the first case uh, or second case, but in the third case, uh, that even with a Democratic-controlled Congress, statutes like that were being passed by Congress. Since then, we can just go through a long string of congressional acts in which they just try and outflank each other, moving more and more to be uh, repressive against people from Guantanamo, people held in executive detention. So they first passed a law that said no Guantanamo person could be brought to the United States for purposes of resettlement, even if they were innocent. Then they most recently passed a law a few weeks ago that said you couldn't even bring Guantanamo people to the United States for purposes of trial. And they do it by funding. They say no monies are available for, for bringing any Guantanamo person to the United States for trial. Now, while there may be some exceptions that the president can figure out, the thrust of that congressional statute means that you can't try people in the United States who have been imprisoned at Guantanamo. Let's think about that. If a year or so ago, they had decided to try the Obama administration to, to try the people who were alleged to be the key conspirators in the 9-11, uh, in the 9-11 attacks on the United States. They were going to try those cases in New York. Once that was announced, a few weeks later, uh, the Obama administration backed off and said, well, we're not so sure we're going to try those people in federal court in New York. We're going to look for another court to try them in, maybe outside of New York, maybe Governor's Island, which is an island off New York City, etc. Of course, since then, we've heard very little. Uh, so now what's happened is Congress got into the act and said, we're, not, we're going to say you can't use any money to try people in the United States. So what does that mean? That means essentially that the alternate system of justice that's been set up by first Bush and now embraced, and I hesitate to, it makes me so angry when I even say it, that that alternative 
judicial system, not judicial system, but I would call a trial system, uh, set up by Bush called the military commissions, has now been embraced by President Obama. And now the intention, to the extent they try anybody else, is to try them through military commissions at Guantanamo, which are you know, essentially rump trials that favor the prosecution. Well, I was going to ask you about military commissions, uh, this uh, parallel judicial system, but nobody, I mean, there's nothing really going on, is there? Is everything just in limbo? If they intend to do this, uh, the Obama administration hasn't uh, tried anybody in a military commission, has it? Well, I would say that limbo is the right word. That if you look at the situation, we have those 180 people at Guantanamo. They claim they're trying to resettle some of those, um, and they claim they're going to try some of those whether they'll try them with military commissions or federal courts, was unclear. Now it looks very hard. I mean, they were not doing much anyway, but now it's even harder to ever try them in federal courts because where are you going to try them? The people can't be brought to the United States. At least it appears that way. So then they would have to try them before military commissions. And there actually have been some cases before military commissions. Uh, The most recent one was of the Canadian uh, citizen, a young man who was picked up when he was 15, child soldier who should have never been tried by anybody. He should have been rehabilitated. Um, But, of course, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, went ahead with the military commission. Ultimately, there was a guilty plea, as there have been in front of the military commissions, the three or four cases that they uh, brought before them. And he received uh, what was obviously a negotiated sentence in which he has to do one more year in Guantanamo and will be sent back to Canada. Because I think it was too embarrassing, even for the Obama administration, to go through a serious trial of a military commissions of a kid of a kid who had been 15 years old uh, when he was picked up. So they don't have much credibility, military commissions. There's never been a real trial, certainly never been a serious trial of anybody other than, you know, cases of the supposed chauffeur for bin Laden and that kind of the cook. And they were all guilty, please, really, with short sentences. So it's a completely bankrupt system. If we look at it, I mean, from a little distance, the entire process post-9-11 by the Bush administration and the Obama administration is utterly bankrupt. But the problem is it's utterly bankrupt, um, but it's but it's imposing on our country a system of law uh, that will be with us for a very, very long time. And if we look at what it's imposed, it's the principle that you can run an offshore prison uh, outside the United States um, that is not subject, according to the government, to the same rules as prisons. Uh, You can file habeas, but the judge can't release you. Uh, You can try people in front of special kinds of courts, military commissions. And lastly, and this is an important one, we're going to see at some period, presumably next month or so, President Obama issue an executive order that will memorialize what is an indefinite detention scheme or preventive detention scheme that we currently have for a number of people at Guantanamo. So of the people at Guantanamo, of the 180, roughly 48 of them have been designated by this administration as people they will not bring to trial, but people they will hold in preventive detention. That is to say, they will never be charged and they will never be tried. They will have periodic reviews, perhaps, but they will never be charged and never tried. And if there's one thing uh, that my office and I think people of goodwill as well as civil libertarians have been fighting tooth and nail, it's the it's the fact that we will do everything we can to prevent, to stop, uh, preventive detention scheme in the United States. 
Because what that means is that people can be picked up, citizens or non-citizens, anywhere in the world, and held without charges and trial. I mean, medieval uh, would be an understatement uh, for that kind of uh, for that kind of law. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show: Obama's national security state. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, that's right. Uh, and now the writ of habeas corpus goes back to the Magna Carta. You have said that without the writ of habeas corpus, we live in a police state. And I'd like you to explain that and also point out that with regard to the right to challenge detention, we talk about it in the context of the Guantanamo prisoners, and it sort of takes it away from the ordinary American citizen. But isn't it uh, a fact that these laws, uh, eventually and even presently, these laws are going to affect all of us, not just these prisoners at Guantanamo? I think your emphasis on the importance of the writ is crucial. I mean, when we think about the origins of the writ, as you said, from the Magna Carta 1215 and going forward, uh, it really came out of uh, the resistance to the expression that the king can do no wrong. So when the king grabbed someone, one of his subjects, by the scruff of the neck and tossed him into some dark, dank dungeon, uh, that person had no recourse, had no way of testing whether there was a valid reason to be held in the king's dungeons. And what the writ of habeas corpus, which literally means bring forth the body before the court, uh, put the body, put the body of the person, put the person in front of the court and test their detention, came out of the fact that people stopped believing that the king could do no wrong, but there had to be a system of some checks and balances, uh, even back in 1215. And so the writ of habeas corpus was a long, evolving process uh, for putting a check on the king. And what we're seeing now, and what we've seen actually even before Guantanamo, and I think some of that history is important, is restrictions on the writ. And so you saw it, of course, most in the last decade with the death penalty. And when people were given the death penalty uh, by a court in the state, they oftentimes took resort to federal court and filed a writ of habeas corpus saying, I was wrongly convicted, contrary to the U.S. Constitution. I want to test my conviction. And what Congress did is they started putting all kinds of restrictions on the right to test that writ, saying you had to do it within a year or you couldn't do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they already started messing with it. Guantanamo represented, of course, you know, the biggest undercutting of it when the government took the position it didn't apply at all at Guantanamo. But now it continues uh, to undercut it, even though the court has said, you can bring the writ because you can't be freed as a result of the writ of habeas corpus if the executive says no. Well, imagine, let's bring it into the United States, and why wouldn't that rule apply in the United States? Let's say I represent a prisoner in, uh, in a federal prison somewhere in the United States. I go to court. I file a writ of habeas corpus. I say, what's the government's evidence? The government says we have no evidence. This is just what the president says. Uh, the court says, well, I hereby find that the person is wrongfully held, and I order the person to be freed. And the president comes in, like he has done in Guantanamo, like Bush did and like Obama has now done, and said, well, too bad for you. Um, I'm the president, and I'm ordering that that person remain in prison. So there you have it. And so the fact that it can undercut um, fundamental rights in the United States uh, is, is quite 
apparent. Uh, that writ of habeas corpus can, and really what amounts to the uh, what I'm calling the preventive detention scheme. The fact that the president can pick up people who he uh, labels, whatever the term they use now, but it's equivalent to the old Bush term of enemy combatants, they put that label on them, and then the people are held in jail without charges. That's preventive detention. Uh, there's no reason uh, to believe that that system uh, can't be used uh, within the continental United States. Certainly Bush attempted it. Uh, it was never really held unconstitutional in the United States. The people were tried in regular courts eventually to avoid a Supreme Court ruling. Uh, but we're, in, we're really in deep trouble on these issues. These, these Guantanamo issues will deeply and are beginning already deeply to infect uh, our, our freedoms in the United States and our criminal justice system. Well, it sounds like preventive detention is still the practice in this administration. Is preventive detention legal in your view? Preventive detention is not legal in my view. Um, there's some debate about it, but I would say that the majority of people who are the lawyers that I work with, uh, the high majority, think there's no place for preventive detention in any legal system worthy of the name legal system. Um, the, the time you see preventive detention, if you want to call it that, is when there's a you know, a war between two states, and one side picks up, you know, soldiers from the other side, and they hold them as POWs, prisoners of war, until the end of the war. That's a form, you could argue, of preventive detention. But that's certainly a different case uh, than we're talking about here at Guantanamo, where the president goes way outside of a war zone, picks up people wherever he wants, people who could be charged criminally if they had done anything, and simply says, I'm not going to try them, I'm just going to hold them. Uh, so preventive detention, uh, I think, uh, is not legal in any respect at all. Uh, and even equally important, really, is the fact that it sets us on a course, uh, sets us on a course where uh, of something that really every every person um, who listens to this show, every every American, uh, everyone living in this country should fear a power that says the president can pick up people, hold them in prison, and not and not have to charge them or bring them to trial. Uh, it's a it's a um, it's a clearly unconstitutional um, and, in my view, uh, immoral and fearsome practice. And what about secret detention sites under Obama? Is that still going on? This is a good question. Um, certainly we have some evidence that there's parts of the Bagram detention facility in Afghanistan that we don't have access to, that the Red Cross appears not to have access to, and that that are secret detention sites. Obama did, in an executive order when he took office, uh, claim to abolish secret detention sites, um, but he didn't completely abolish them. He said in that executive order that I want them closed, but temporary sites essentially was what, I don't know if they referred to as that exactly, where people can be held while they're being moved around, he did not abolish. So we don't know enough about either Bagram in its secret part or secret prisons which have been alleged to exist currently in Iraq, other ones in Afghanistan, um, some of these so-called temporary CIA sites. We don't know enough uh, to say uh, that they exist um, or don't exist. My, my belief is that the Bagram one, there's more is known about, and, and that, that one exists as they claim it's temporary holding while people are processed, but the holding goes on for a uh, very long time. Whether there are sites like the kind that Bush ran in, you know, in Romania, in 
Poland, in Lithuania, um, where people were taken for purposes of torture. Um, I'm hopeful that those type of sites don't exist, um, but I worry, of course, a lot about about what's happening in Bagram. At the same time, you know, the practice of secret sites run by the United States or in other countries um, was one practice that at least there's there's been some improvement on apparently, but not not complete. Um, but the process of rendition, uh, where you take people, uh, snatch people, and, and take them not to a secret site necessarily, but turn them over to another country where they can be interrogated, tortured, and questioned, uh, that practice is still continuing under Obama. Um, we call it extraordinary rendition. Um, he claimed to be abolishing it, that he wouldn't send people to extraordinary rendition. In other words, where they're taken to another place and uh, questioned and tortured. Um, but they claim they're doing that by getting guarantees from the other country that that won't happen. That's not worth anything when you come to countries like um, Egypt, which is routinely tortures people. And we just saw an outrageous case of an American citizen, no less, a young American citizen, 18 years old, who was in Yemen for a while. Um, and he he was put on a no-fly list. When he went to fly from Yemen back to the United States, he wasn't allowed to board the plane. And ultimately, and I think at the behest of the United States, he was turned over to the Kuwaitis. He was flying out of Kuwait, uh, where, according to his story, he was not only interrogated and threatened by FBI agents in, in custody in Kuwait, but he was beaten as well um, by the Kuwaitis. So there we have a clear example of a U.S. citizen, 18-year-old kid, and if any of us should be screaming, it's about the fact there's an 18-year-old U.S. citizen sitting in a Kuwaiti prison, and the U.S. won't allow him back in, and has actually been, uh, in my view, deeply complicitous in his abusive treatment. Now, you have written that when your attorneys got access to Guantanamo, they pretty much, for the most part, stopped sending prisoners there. And you are now saying that you don't have access to Bagram uh, Air Base in Afghanistan, so we don't really know what's going on. What about torture? Now, you've mentioned that. Has that practice abated under Obama? Well, I think that the point you're making is quite important. Uh, by getting access to Guantanamo, uh, we were able to stop most of the abuse. Because when you have attorneys coming down there constantly, it's very difficult for the bureaucracy and the, the administrations and the military and the CIA, et cetera, to torture people when they're going to have a visit from an attorney the next day. And so what they, the administration really stopped after even September 2004, when we won the first of our uh, well, June 2004, we won the first of our Guantanamo cases. Stop sending people to Guantanamo. The only people they really sent after that, as far as we know, um, were what they called uh, the detainees from the secret sites. Uh, and those had already been tortured, and so I guess they didn't have to take them there uh, for torture. And then what happened is Bagram started to increase in the number of people that were taken to Bagram. And we do have access, or attorneys do have access to certain sections of Bagram, most of it, um, but to some sections they have no access to. Uh, and in that section, I have no doubt uh, that people are being abused in that section, if not tortured in that section of Bagram. And in fact, if you look at what Obama did, he abolished torture more or less. And I say less uh, because he left in 
the military handbook on what techniques are allowed, he left in what's called Annex M. Annex M, as in Michael, um, allows certain techniques to be used against not POWs, but against others, which would include people like those who are picked up and taken to places like Bagram. And those include sleep deprivation, which is considered a form or can amount to a certainly cruel inhuman treatment, if not torture, hooding, and isolation. And those three techniques taken together are the techniques that have always been discussed uh, by experts in the field that lead to the breakdown of the human personality and amount to torture. Those techniques are still permitted uh, by the U.S. military. And it's not as if Obama administration does not know about that, because there's been many appeals to them to stop this, uh, to end that, and of course they haven't done so. So when we look at that, we understand that this administration, while it may not be and appears not to be uh, waterboarding, we don't have any evidence it's doing that, it is engaging in what many of us consider a form of torture. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, Obama's National Security State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about targeted assassinations, uh, most particularly of American citizens? Uh, This is openly spoken of by the government with regard to the Muslim cleric in Yemen, an American. Uh, What right does the United States government have to assassinate Americans? Well, you know, the Center for Constitutional Rights, along with the American Civil Liberties Union, actually filed a lawsuit with regard to a particular targeted assassination attempt, or at least uh, someone being put on the list, uh, in Yemen. It's a Muslim cleric named El Alwaki, and the administration clearly and purposely leaked out uh, that they were putting this American citizen on a targeted assassination list. And there was an uproar, and there's been an uproar in, I think, the wider community, not just the Center for Constitutional Rights and the ACLU, over the idea that completely outside a war zone, and Yemen is clearly not in Afghanistan, it's not in Iraq, uh, that the administration can simply, on its own, put an American citizen on a targeted assassination list and then go and try and kill him, whether it's assassinate him, bomb him, or kill him with a drone. And it, it does seem a completely illegal and unconstitutional practice. I mean, yes, you can kill an American citizen if an American citizen is fighting against you in a war. Uh, But can someone who the administration just claims has made threats against the United States, if he has done that, or made speeches in which he condemns the United States, uh, can Obama, just as the president, decide, I'm going to kill that American citizen? The answer that the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights have given is no, he can't. Uh, This is an American citizen. He's not picked up arms in a war zone against the United States. And you need to have a court process. Uh, First of all, the the first thing you need, yes, you can arrest a person like that. Let's be clear. You can try and arrest him. You can indict him, first of all. They haven't indicted him as far as we know. You can indict him. And then you can go try and arrest him. And you have to use reasonable force to try and arrest him. You can't just go kill him. And, of course, if there's a fight, then, of course, there's a fight. Um, But you can't just decide without indicting him, without going to a court. Um, You can't just decide you're going to target kill him. And and the real danger, if you look at it, if you look at what, what they've done here, is the president tomorrow 
could put any one of us on the targeted assassination list. Uh, assuming you're a citizen, Bonnie, whether you were not or are, he could put you on a targeted assassination list. He could put me on a targeted assassination list. And what could be done about it? We could be dead before he did it. Uh, we're not in a war zone. We're American citizens. And he could decide that. So our argument is that some process has to happen before you can do that. If you can do it at all, you have to indict the person. You have to make attempts to arrest the person. Um, all of that process is required. It's a serious due process issue. It's a serious issue of protection of American citizens. Uh, in, in my view, to kill someone like that would, would really make this country um, a complicit in murder uh, of a person like that. Now, unfortunately, in the case, which was treated very respectfully by the court, it was recently argued a few months ago, actually, a uh, long two-hour argument by, uh, by my office, uh, the center, as well as the ACLU, uh, and in a long decision, we lost that. We lost that case, and I think uh, we lost it really on, a, on the wrong ground. I'd say the main grounds we lost it on was what's called the political question grounds, which I think had no applicability here. Political question grounds are when the court says the decision to target El Awaki is a decision made by the political branches, by the president and the Congress if necessary, um, and it's not a decision that the court ought to get involved in. I think the court was dead wrong on it. If there's anything the court ought to get involved in, it's when the executive targets an American citizen for death. Uh, and in that sense, what you brings me back to what you said earlier here, that isn't the Obama administration just overriding uh, the separation of powers here? Shouldn't on, on prisoners and habeas corpus, shouldn't the courts have a right to say this person should be freed? And shouldn't really, uh, which is where we're going now on this, shouldn't, when it comes to the targeted killing of an American citizen, shouldn't the courts have a role in deciding whether that's appropriate or not? What the court was saying here is the court doesn't have a role in that. So what we have now, after a district court decision, is that the president uh, can commit murder. Yeah, that's really scary. And uh, what about murder by drones? I suppose that's the same kind of a situation, right? Well, they could have, they could try, and we don't know if they have or missed or well, they'll try again. They could try and kill El Awaki uh, by drones. Now, of course, drones uh, are particularly a nasty piece of business. I mean, there's lots of things you can say about drones. Uh, but one is, of course, um, that they, they're surprisingly inaccurate, which is to say that so there's some guy sitting in Virginia with some television screens, uh, you know, looking at pictures that are coming back from drones and then releasing bombs or whatever the drone onto some population and they obviously don't know who they're hitting uh, and we've seen tremendous uh, civilian killings and murders because of drones uh, so they're they're a very inaccurate uh, way to carry out uh, war secondly they're being used outside of war zones they're being being used in Yemen um, they're being used in other areas of the world where there's no war going on. Uh, so there's a huge civilian number of civilians killed, as well as the fact that they're, they're really being used outside of a war zone. Uh, plus, you know, in general, just, I mean, mechanized killing like that um, encourages more mechanized killing. Because here you have people playing essentially video games in Virginia, murdering people across the globe. 
and, and there's no consequences for that. Um, and they're not taking any risk. They're sending up some mechanical killer and dropping it on somebody, um, which means that war is easier and easier to make, particularly from the home country that's making it, because they're not taking any risk with their own lives. Uh, and so it, 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 it just increases uh, exponentially, in my view, um, the possibilities or the, uh, the push toward war after war after war. What about government surveillance and infiltration of political groups? Has the political environment for dissent changed? Is dissent more dangerous now? You write that there are a series of guidelines that are issued periodically uh, by the president uh, to control, or some say unleash, the FBI. What are these presidential guidelines which allow investigation of American dissent? Uh, you know, Bonnie, this... These guidelines really track my almost my entire history as a uh, as a progressive political lawyer, uh, and my efforts and the center's efforts and other organizations' efforts to try and put some restraint on what I call the political police in the United States, and that could be the FBI, the CIA, or the dozen other intelligence agencies that are uh, that are spying on us, putting infiltrators into our organizations, and the like. Uh, what the guidelines are is they came about really after, in the 70s, after the Church Committee revealed that there was massive government surveillance and spying on everything from the Communist Party to the New Left to the Black Panthers uh, to the Puerto Rican movement. Every movement you can think of, Hoover had agents in their spying. Um, Every organization you can think of, uh, CIA people were operating here illegally. The FBI was doing it illegally. And so out of that emerged a set of presidential, really presidential guidelines to restrict the FBI and the CIA uh, to what would be still to me much too broad of surveillance power, but at least some restriction. So there had to be, before they could open an investigation, they had to have some evidence of criminality. Um, they, they could only use infiltrators if there was a higher level of criminality, etc. And what we've seen since 1976, which is the first set of guidelines, we've seen a steady deterioration in the restraints on the political police in this country, on the FBI, on the intelligence agencies. And the last two sets of guidelines that came out of the Bush administration, one were the Ashcroft guidelines, the Attorney General at the time of 9-11, and he started lifting most of the restrictions on the FBI. And I thought that was, um, you know, it was pretty bad. Um, but then you got to the end of the Bush administration, and you had a new set of FBI guidelines called the McKay Guidelines, named after the Attorney General McKay at the end of the Bush administration. Those were put in 30 days before the end of the Bush administration, uh, and they essentially took away the key element of the guidelines, which is that you had some evidence of criminality before you could begin an investigation. Now the FBI can begin an investigation of anybody, any organization, any person, uh, etc., and it can use infiltrators pretty much whenever it wants. Uh, it can uh, monitor free speech whenever it wants. It can walk into churches, temples, mosques whenever it wants. It can knock on my door despite no evidence of criminality, etc. Those were 30 days before the end of the Bush administration. And then what happened, we had high hopes that Obama would 
would again give us at least some semblance of reasonable guidelines that had some restrictions on the FBI, CIA, etc. in the United States. Uh, but of course, we were dashed in our hopes. Those guidelines of the Bush administration, the McKay guidelines, remain the guidelines used by the FBI and the CIA in the current Obama administration. And we've seen the results of it. You saw the results at uh, the Republican National uh, Convention in Minneapolis, where there were infiltrators all over the place. You see the results in various prosecutions in which infiltrators and informants are stuck into groups all the time and oftentimes as agent provocateurs. We're seeing those results uh, everywhere. We've seen them in in the um, in the group witness against torture, uh, we've seen them in uh, in the Merton Center in Pittsburgh at the G20 demonstrations. So we've seen the evidence that the political police are all over dissent, uh, legitimate, good old American dissent, all over that uh, in the United States. And, and so it's really a nasty piece of business. And the latest, the latest, and the worst, of course are the subpoenas that have recently been issued to 20 or now 25 activists out of Chicago, Minneapolis, Michigan, etc., to investigate uh, supposed contacts of various groups um, with Palestinians uh, and with people from uh, Lebanon and Colombia. And those um, really have sent a scare uh, through the uh, progressive community, through the liberal community, because there's no real evidence uh, that any crime was committed uh, by any of those people. But yet there are these grand jury subpoenas out there um, based on uh, some very bad Supreme Court decisions um, that actually a case litigated by my office uh, about what you can do uh, in advocating for and working with groups overseas. So I would, you know, I think that your listeners can hear all of that, but of course if they've ever gone to a demonstration, they can see it. Uh, they can see the pens. They can start by seeing that the permits aren't given, uh, no sound permits are given. Then they see the pens. Then they see the horses. Then they see the mass arrests where nets are thrown over hundreds of people, as they were in New York, as they were in Minneapolis, people rounded up. When they see journalists arrested, um, you don't have to hear it from me. Go to any demonstration uh, and you see it. I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, Obama's National Security State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, uh, yes, that's right. And what about the G20 meeting in Pittsburgh and the use of so-called non-lethal weapons on the crowd? What were they using, sound machines to disperse people? Yeah, I mean, Pittsburgh was a real outrage at the G20. Um, first, they denied the permits, and uh, the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights went to court and got permits. Uh, then we sent some lawyers out there, and of course, the usual crowd dispersal techniques, but the big one is the one you're referring to, um, and it had never been used in the United States before. They pull up this large truck with some big machine on it, and there's two or three, four hundred people out in the crowd, and they turn it on, and it's and it's a sound machine um, that you can't stand to be within whatever, a thousand feet of the machine um, without the pain being so great uh, that you either fall to the ground or run away. And that's the machine they used in, uh, in Pittsburgh to break up demonstrations. I mean, think about every dictatorship in the world. Um, think about Chile and 
you know, when they overthrew Allende. Um, think about what happens in demonstrations, and think about on the streets of America in Pittsburgh, the rolling out of a sound machine uh, might as well be Bull Connor's water hose from the south. Think about that, and think about what's happening to the right to demonstrate, uh, the right to protest in the United States. And it's not a small thing. Um, because in my view, social change, progressive change, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer, but it doesn't happen by me sitting behind a computer or going to court. Um, it happens uh, when people, as it did in Tunisia recently, when people, thousands and millions of people take to the streets. And so a key thing that's going on in this country uh, is the suppression of dissent. And by dissent, I mean effective dissent, which is people taking to the streets. Yes, and and you mentioned the uh, 2010 FBI raids in Chicago and Minneapolis targeting anti-war activists. Didn't they just basically break into their houses and take their computers and their files and everything they could find? And now, where does that stand? You say that the subpoenas have been issued by uh, by a grand jury for some of these people. Well, I think those pictures of the FBI breaking into people's houses. Uh, were really a chilly warning to people, because uh, you saw FBI just taking out boxes and boxes of people's files, their computers, their cell phones, um, and for what? Uh, for what seems to be a total fishing expedition where they have almost nothing, if nothing, I presume nothing, not almost nothing. Um, so that's a nasty, uh, really scary, scary part of this investigation. But over the last couple of months, since those since those files were stolen from people's houses, and that's the word I would use, or their offices, um, the grand jury, and the grand jury is a, a body of, quote, citizens that are really pretty much hand-selected, but citizens um, who, who investigate and indict people for criminal wrong. And the grand jury, it's really, though, the district attorney through the grand jury um, issue, or the federal prosecutor who issues uh, warrants or subpoenas, rather, in this case, for people to come and testify in front of the grand jury. And what you have now, the current situation is some 25 people, as I recall, and I think that's the right number, have been subpoenaed to testify in front of a grand jury in Chicago, and they're not even telling people what they have to testify about. Um, for a while, we thought it was about a certain organization or about contacts with Palestinians, um, but the last subpoenas that have been issued don't even put the law down that they're they're alleged to be gathering information about. As of the last few days, most, if not all of those people, have, have said that we are not going to testify in front of the grand jury. Um, so we'll have to see where it goes, uh, because the next step is up to the government to say, well, we're going to try and force you to testify by giving you immunity from any of the evidence you give uh, being used against you. The government hasn't done that yet. So in this case, so far... I only say so far, it looks like the resistance to the grand jury, which is a resistance that comes out of really scores of years of seeing government overreaching with grand juries uh, to wipe out and go after progressive movements. That resistance, uh, built on a strong historical background, seems to be pushing the government back. But, of course, we won't know uh, for a while. And so then what do you think it's going to take to bring about change? You've touched on this. It's going to be brought about by social movements, right? No, I wish I had easy answers. It's clear to me that change is only going to be brought about by social movements, um, by people getting organized, getting into the streets, beginning to make mass protests, um, beginning to, whether it's on the issues of 
um, that I'm talking about civil liberties or the issues of war, which are intimately related to them, or the issues of the declining job situation and economy, all of those uh, will not change out of Washington. I mean, we've seen that time and again. Uh, the civil rights movement um, had a die, essentially. I mean, people had a die. People had to go into the streets. People had to take law into their own hands, essentially, to finally get Washington to give us a Civil Rights Act, to finally end um, interstate uh, discrimination in busing and in housing and hotels. And so Washington doesn't move until the people move. Now, I have no magic roadmap um, for how people begin to move. But there's a lot more going on in this country, I think, than is apparent from watching the major news media. And I don't just mean the Tea Party. Uh, when you go from city to city, in every city I've gone to, in every town I've gone to, uh, there's all kinds, particularly young people, uh, taking on uh, different issues in a variety of ways, from wanting organic farming, uh, to organizing around um, AIDS, to organizing around the war. There's always a demonstration against the war. So there's much going on that is not apparent because the media doesn't cover it, and also because it hasn't coalesced into uh, international movements. Uh, so I'm convinced it's out there. I don't think you can oppress a people uh, for, for as long as uh, the majority of people in America are suffering. I mean, if you look at just the health care system, the education system, apart from the areas I work on, the war and the civil liberties <laughs> in this country, um, we're living in a, in a country uh, in which people are really suffering. So I think we're going to see the rise of social movements. Uh, I don't think working inside the Beltway, I don't think uh, choosing one lesser evil over another, which but by that I mean Obama versus, um, versus Bush, is going to change things. Do I think yeah, do I do I think it's okay to cast your vote in that way? Yeah, I don't think that's that's not the big deal to me. The big deal is organizing and pushing the issues on the agenda we want, uh, because politicians only do uh, what they're pushed to do. And what about Miranda rights? Do we still have Miranda rights? Well, Miranda rights, as I'm sure the listeners know, are when you get arrested, uh, the cop is supposed to inform you that you have a right to remain silent, that anything you say can be used against you. And if you want to consult a lawyer and can't afford a lawyer, um, the state will give you a lawyer. Those are the classic Miranda rights. They're to prevent overreaching at the, uh, the police station, They're to prevent people from giving false confessions uh, or confessions at all. Um, and those are Miranda rights. They've been under attack by the police and the right uh, and by certainly members of the current Supreme Court for many years, uh, but they're still there. Uh, there is an emergency exception for Miranda rights. Uh, we saw it exercised when they picked up the alleged, uh, I think he pleaded guilty, actually, uh, the um, Christmas bomber in in Times Square who left a car full of explosives that fizzled out. And in his case, they didn't give him the Miranda rights for a couple of weeks under the so-called exception to Miranda, which has been there for a while, uh, that you can continue to question people if there's uh, whatever the standard is, a reasonable possibility or something, uh, that there may be other acts you have to find out about. And you can only do that for a certain period of time. But what, what shockingly came out of the Obama administration uh, was an attempt made to broaden that exception so that anybody accused of a terrorism charge would not have to be given their Miranda rights. And worse, this is really even worse, that part of that is, part of Miranda really broadly stated is the requirement that you be brought before a federal court or a state court, whichever court you're accused of doing a crime in, within 24 hours 
48 at the most, of your arrest. And it's called presentment. And that's a key protection, because unless you get a person before the court, think what the cops or uh, FBI or CIA can do to you in the weeks before you're taken to a court if there's no requirement to get before a court in 24 hours. And shockingly, uh, the Obama administration, our attorney general himself, Holder, who should know better, suggested uh, that we might want to lengthen the time of presentment, the time before we have to bring a person to court. Well, luckily, uh, that's stupid, unconstitutional, and really uh, harmful uh, rule has so far, or harmful change, um, has not, there's been no real attempt to implement it. So Miranda pretty much is where it stood a while ago, except that this emergency exception, which I think was to be very narrowly used, uh, has been has been, I think, misused uh, under the current uh, administration, particularly in the case of the Times Square alleged bomber. So, Michael, in closing, would you say that uh, we live in dark times? Well, currently in the United States has all the hallmarks of a place um, that is really not a, not a, a place that's protective of the fundamental rights of being human. And I say that whether it comes to the employment situation, the job situation, the immigration situation, which we didn't really touch on, um, the war situation, uh, and the civil liberty situation. So if you look at each of what I consider as the hallmarks of a society that is a just and fair society, and that's some equality around education, health care, um, employment, and wages, uh, a society that doesn't go to war um, at all, if not only when it's absolutely 100% necessary, uh, a society that protects the fundamental rights of all of its citizens, uh, a society that doesn't target or discriminate against a particular population, in this case Muslims, uh, I would say we're living in, in a very, very dark time on those key issues that to me make up uh, and decide whether society is just or not. At the same time, I would say there is a lot more group and individual resistance um, than is visible to most, uh, that there's still a core in this country, and they're active all over, um, that is fighting against what seems to be an overwhelming tide right now. Have I seen this before? Um, I would say sure, but I haven't really seen it in this way, um, when the right wing has so much power and it keeps pulling um, the politicians to the right, as well as the media to the right. And I think that's extremely serious. Uh, I think interviews like this, and of course the stations that broadcast this, are, are a critical part uh, of fighting back, because as you see, the major media is just pulled to the right continuously. Michael Ratner, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Michael Ratner. Today's show has been Obama's National Security State. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights and is adjunct professor of law at Columbia University Law School. He has also been a lecturer of international human rights litigation at the Yale Law School and the Columbia School of Law, president of the National Lawyers Guild, legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, and radio co-host for the civil rights show Law and Disorder. Michael Ratner serves on the board of the Culture Project in New York City, 
and is Vice President of the Board of Voices of a People's History of the United States. Visit the website for the Center for Constitutional Rights at www.ccrjustice.org. That's ccrjustice.org. Michael Ratner's blog at www.justleft.org. That's justleft.org. And his radio show at www. Dot law and disorder.org. That's law and disorder.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's blfaulkner at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decide yourself For peace